Let's pray. Okay, Father, uh, here we are at the beginning of Advent season, and we're celebrating and enjoying it, and we pray that you would be in our deliberations, our thought process this morning, even now. Fill us all, God, with your spirit. Let us be good listeners. Uh, Challenge us as only you can. But God, one thing, let us not waste this season, the season of Advent. Let us make use of it in a way that changes us, opens us up to what you want to say and what you want to do in our lives. Father, this we ask you to do in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. Well, I wonder if any of you can relate. Uh, Very recently, last night, uh, Holly and I were in the midst of a little spat, okay? Uh, I, I do very much remember what it was about, but I won't say what it was about. So Holly said something that I didn't appreciate. My feelings were hurt. Uh, I felt a little bit rejected by her, not appreciated by her. And uh, in the midst of that and feeling those things, some voice spoke to me deep down inside, not necessarily an audible voice, but it's a voice. Some immature, pouting, self-serving voice said, well, you can show her. You can get even. You can make her feel bad. She made you feel bad. And so in really subtle, clever ways, I began to move away from her. You know how that happens? I stiffen up a bit, right? Get a little cold and abrupt with her. My conversation becomes kind of just matter of fact, or I don't really want to engage. Does anybody else do this besides pastors? (laughs) Or is this just a pastoral thing? Okay. And then shortly after this, and this is usually the case, shortly after this, You know, I hear another voice, (laughs) and it's a better voice speaking in my mind, saying, "Uh, Dwayne, there you go again. This is not right. This is not how Jesus loves you or treats you. This is not the way to relate to Holly. And I feel myself pushed in the direction of going back to Holly, apologizing, telling her what was bothering me. We talk that out. We engage around that. I ask forgiveness, she asks forgiveness. We repair the relationship. And understand that whole little scenario, that, that experience, uh, when, when your thoughts turn from hostility to humility, uh, or when your emotions change from irritation to actually affection, uh, and it, when intention turns from wanting to inflict pain on that person that hurt you or offended you, and actually turns towards wanting to connect, Um, understand that's a spiritual force at work. That is a spiritual force invented, empowered, and driven by our great God. And there's a word for that force. There's a word for that process. It's called reconciliation. It's a good word. In reconciliation, barriers to community get torn down. In reconciliation, people who are estranged and divided from one another, get reunited. In reconciliation, hostility and woundedness get replaced with healing and stuff like goodwill. The uh, old prophets of Israel loved the theme, the story of reconciliation. And uh, they actually contended and argued that the whole world longs for reconciliation. And uh, they would paint pictures in their writings oftentimes about what reconciliation just might look like. 
someday. You know, when the Messiah comes, when God's anointed shows up, things are going to be different, they would say. And reconciliation would happen not just for human beings and God, but even for all of God's creation and all of God's creatures. There would be peace, there would be shalom, and they would paint these beautiful pictures. For example, the prophet Isaiah painted this picture one time about reconciliation. He said, the day will come when the wolf will live with the lamb. Picture that one. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, all lying down. And a little child will lead them. Now that is a picture of reconciliation. Enemies living together, lying together, all being led by an innocent little child. And you know, when we think about reconciliation today uh, or contemplate the possibility of reconciliation happening in our world, we can very easily think about places like North and South Korea. They've been divided for so long. Who remembers when they weren't? Uh, Wanting to kill each other, being at war with each other. What a great thing it would be for a place like that, North Korea, South Korea, to get reunited, live in harmony and peace. What would it be like in our world if Israelis and Palestinians figured out a way to not just coexist, but actually cooperate, serve, and love one another? What kind of change would that bring about? You know, in our own country, what would it be like if the wounds of 250 years of racial slavery, uh, the wounds of racial slavery, and another 100 years of things like Jim Crow laws and all the crazy nonsense that went with that, what if things like that, that racial injustice that seems to always bubble up in our culture and in our society, what if that got healed? What would our country be like? Uh, You can imagine this even more personally. Take the marriage. There's been estrangement in a marriage for so many years running so deeply, there's little or no touch anymore. There's little or no affection. Little or no compassion between husband and wife. Little or no intimacy. And so while they live in the same space, they don't really live together. Not really. There's palpable separation. There's crippling loneliness in a marriage like that. Well, imagine a marriage like that getting healed and being reconciled. Pictures like that, stories like that, situations like that, whether it's a nation or whether it's a husband and wife, visions of reconciliation, those things actually capture our hearts because we all know, we all experience a great deal of separation and hurt and heartache in our own marriages and our own places where we work, in our own schools and neighborhoods and certainly in our nation. In all these areas, if we're being honest, we are deeply divided, deeply. Even in religious groups, spiritual communities, uh, the same can be said. Christians tend to become just one more divisive faction trying to power up over other groups with whom we disagree. And that is why spiritually and personally and socially, and I would say systemically, the crying need for our world and our culture is reconciliation but here's the problem we're not very good at it we can't seem to fix the stuff that's broken in us or broken out there 
And yet I would submit to you too, reconciliation is the story of Christmas. Uh, The apostle Paul wrote these words to a church at Corinth. He said, and this is from God. Anytime somebody tells you, this is from God, you might want to, oh, okay, what, what is it? What, what is from God? He says, and this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Those are interesting words. You see, the Advent season This Advent season that we're entering into, we are going to become students of this thing of reconciliation. That's what I want to do together in the next few weeks. We're going to learn what it looks like and what it takes to be reconciled to God. In fact, that's what we're going to kind of focus on this morning. And then next week, we're going to talk about what it looks like to be reconciled to each other, to other people. And then the week after that, we'll talk about how we become agents ourselves of reconciliation, God's reconciliation towards others. Uh, Paul mentions this unbelievable mission that God has given to us, to the church. And uh, he calls it being agents of reconciliation. That's a remarkable thing because our world needs reconciliation and we are the agents to bring that message to our world. And all of this, of course, is going to lead us right up to Christmas Eve. And here's part of why we're doing this. (laughs) I think the best part, one of the very best parts of the holiday season is that it's it's a time when families get get together. And I I think one of the worst parts of the holiday season uh, is the fact that it's a time when families get together. You see, we all grew up in a family. (laughs) We all grew up in one of those families where somebody had issues, right? If you're not sure who that is in your family, it's almost certainly you. (laughs) Turns out the first book in the Bible, the book we call Genesis, is a book about families, essentially. And in the very first family, uh, you might know this, you might remember, the very first family, the older brother Cain kills his younger brother Abel. Yeah. A couple of generations later, there's a guy named Lamech who comes along, and he's the world's first polygamist, okay? And he's a murderer as well. Um, not such a great guy. And then we run into Noah before long as we read the book of Genesis. And Noah's the righteous guy, remember? He and his family, they're the ones singled out to build the ark, a large boat. And of course, because of that labor, animals are saved, human lives are saved. And then once all of that happens and they come out of the ark, what, what does Noah do? Well, he gets naked and he gets drunk and He curses his youngest son. You remember Abraham, who comes along a little later. Abraham's a guy who impregnates his wife's maidservant. You might remember that. Uh, Jacob comes along a little later, deceives his father, and steals his twin brother's inheritance rights. And then Jacob himself has 12 sons by two wives and two maids of those wives. Uh, He favors his one son, Joseph, so much over all the other sons that the other 11 can't stand Joseph. They hate him. They want to kill him. But one of the brothers, Judah, talks them, the other brothers, into just selling Joseph into slavery and telling their dad that Joseph was dead. These are great families that made it into the Bible. 
You ought to feel a little better about your family now. (laughs) Well, in the middle of all of this dysfunction comes the story that we're going to look at today. And I'm telling you that this story is a Christmas story. You're not going to believe that. You're probably going to disagree with me at the outset. Uh, you're going to think, no, nah, there's no way. With it. Why, are we, why are we even reading this? Why are we having this uh, study? What I'm going to contend from now right to the end that this is totally a Christmas story. In spite of the weirdness and the messiness and the brokenness that's in it. And uh, so without further ado, let's dive into our story. This is Genesis 38. And this is what we read. It says, At that time Judah left his brothers, and he went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. And there Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua, and he married her, and he made love to her. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. And she conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. And Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, and so the Lord put him to death. Wow. (laughs) Uh, This man Judah leaves his brothers, and he goes down to a place called Adullam, and he marries a Canaanite girl. Now understand, to the ancient Israelite reader, uh, that immediately means Family in trouble, okay? That's what that says, family in trouble. Because you do not in that day leave your brothers, not for any reason whatsoever. And so they, the reader of, the, uh, of that period of time would immediately understand there's a big broken family thing going on here in this story. Now add to that, Judah is going to, <clears throat> uh, well, this, this is a story about marrying a Canaanite woman. Uh, and uh, he gets a Canaanite woman for his, for his son. And if you were an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, that meant you were choosing idolatry. You were choosing unfaithfulness. And so Judah is going down a very bad road from the very first sentence of this story that we're looking at. Now, Judah and his wife, and we never actually learn her name, which is just kind of interesting to me, uh, he marries this woman, uh, but we, we don't, we're not even told her name, a Canaanite woman. Uh, but they have three boys, we're told their names, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And the boys grow up. Did you see how fast that story moved? I mean, they went from being born to all of a sudden getting them a wife. Uh, we're told that Judah got a wife for Ur. That's his firstborn son. And her name, we're told, is Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. And again, it's just interesting to me, we're not told what he did that was so wicked, but believe me, it was wicked because God takes his life, puts him to death. And you'll notice the writer wants us to be sure where Ur is in the birth order. Did you notice that? Twice he tells us that Ur is the firstborn of Judah. Now, even in our day, firstborns are, interestingly, disproportionately the achievers and the leaders for some reason. They're presidents, they're prime ministers, they're business entrepreneurs. In the ancient world, add to that that the firstborn would be the heir to everything, everything that mattered in the family. All the good stuff, the property, the inheritance, all went to the firstborn son. And that's why he was named Ur, because he was uh, handsomer and smarter and stronger and going to get more stuff. 
we all want to live in the land of Ur, don't we? We all think we do live in the land of Ur. <clears throat> but unfortunately, it turns out too that he is wickeder. And uh, so Ur is out of this story about as fast as he's in it. In ancient Israel also, uh, this was also practice, a practice of other nations, not just Israel. If a woman's husband died, her father-in-law then was the individual, the male over her. Uh, this is a patriarchal society. And her father-in-law was then obligated to have her marry his next oldest son. They didn't have a national or social welfare system, and this was in part at least addressing needs like that. So everybody would have recognized her father-in-law, Judah's obligation, right, to do this, to enter, so enter Onan, his second son. He's going to give his second son to Tamar. Now, Onan almost certainly has other wives, or at least another wife. This is a polygamous culture. Um, and if Onan, you understand, does indeed have a child by Tamar, there are all kinds of implications to that for him. Uh, that child would get the firstborn inheritance, right? All that good stuff. It will go to that child that Tamar has, uh, not to Onan, not to his sons, not to his family, not to his wives. Uh, it would mean financial loss for Onan. So Onan decides he's going to cheat Tamar essentially shaming her with barrenness in that culture. And so this is what we read. It says, Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. And so the Lord put him to death also. Now here's another, <laughs> wow. I told you this was a Christmas story. <laughs> Be sure and read it to your kids. <laughs> now, you got to understand as we read this, <clears throat> the ancient reader, they're, they're seeing this with a slightly different lens than we might read it with. They understand that Tamar is a tragic victim in this story. And they would be feeling for Tamar just how badly she's being abused. Here's a woman that wants a child. Uh, she wants to bring offspring into the world in a culture where survival was dicey and the human population, you know, struggled to thrive. So it's a good thing for a woman to want to have children. Uh, not only that, in Tamar, even though she is a Canaanite, which means she's a pagan, an idolatrous, uh, she or was, at least at one time, she clearly now wants to be part of the story of the people of God. And she's doing all the things she's supposed to do to be a part of that story. And so the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah, she was devoting herself to this new people of hers, to becoming an Israelite or being an Israelite, a mother of the people of God. And yet she had been given two, uh, not one, but two men of great wickedness, so much so that God had taken their lives. And this woman, Tamar, is still without children, which puts her in a very, very vulnerable position. And so Judah's moral obligation to Tamar would be clear to everybody reading this story. Judah should have her marry his third son, Shelah. And so he tells Tamar what you, the reader, would expect him to tell her. You go home to your dad. I'm going to raise Shelah. Let him age up a little bit. 
And when he's old enough, I'll call you. You come marry him and you have children by Shelah. But secretly, that's not what Judah's thinking. Uh, what Judah is actually thinking is, yeah, in your dreams, that is not going to happen. There is no way I'm giving my third son to you. Two have already died for marrying you. That isn't going to happen. And so he never sins for her. He abandons her to grow old and die alone. That is uh, the future that he is relegating to Tamar. Just get old and die. Now, after some period of time, we learn that Judah's wife dies. And Judah does not spend a lot of time mourning her death, it would seem. Uh, he is quickly ready to date again, but he's not an e-harmony guy or a Christian mingle guy or even an our time 50 plus guy. He's more of a tender kind of guy. <laughs> so on a business trip to Timnah, he stops along the way at a town called Enaim. And Tamar has heard about this trip that her father-in-law is making. And kind of to our surprise, this Canaanite woman goes into action and she disguises herself as what else? A prostitute. Part of that means that she wears a veil so that she can't be recognized. And Judah, on his way to Timnah, comes into this town in Aim, and there he sees Tamar. He doesn't know it's Tamar. But he propositions her as the local prostitute. And he offers to send her a young goat for her services. And uh, she asks for a pledge. What will you give me until I get the goat? And so he gives her his seal, his cord, which is a, like a staff or a, a, a belt worn. And he gives her his staff as collateral. And he expects to get those back when the goat arrives in payment. So they have sex. And although she doesn't know it, she gets pregnant, or although... Uh, Judah doesn't know it, Tamar does, but she gets pregnant, uh, and now she is uh, pregnant by the father of her first two husbands. So remember, this is a Christmas story. <laughs> Be sure and tell it to your kids, okay? I did, I had a person come up after the first service that they had their young son in here who wanted to know what semen was, so you know, they're, they're going to be having that conversation. <laughs> Good things come out of Christmas stories, anyway. So Judah, get this now, Judah is now both the father of Tamar's offspring and Tamar's father-in-law. And this means, of course, that Tamar will be the mother of these children as well as their sister-in-law. How messed up is this? <clears throat> this is a messed up family. How are you feeling about your family? Your family measuring up okay so far? Yeah. Well, Judah goes home. He tries to FedEx a goat to Enaim, to the local prostitute. But everybody's chuckling because everybody knows there is no local prostitute at Enaim, and yet Judah found one, so where is she? And uh, so he tries, and he doesn't succeed in the delivery of the goat, and so he says, forget it, I'm done. I don't want everybody to keep laughing at me, so I'm, I'm done with this. Now several months go by. And word comes to Judah that his widowed daughter-in-law, Tamar, is wearing maternity clothes. And he's not happy about this. Actually, this is probably most likely an opportunity for Judah to get rid of a problem. Uh, she's gotten herself pregnant. Now, of course, Judah has no idea who the father is. In fact, there's nothing in the text that would tell us he cares. He doesn't seem to make any attempt at trying to find out who that is. But now it is up to him as her father-in-law to figure out how to respond and what to do with Tamar. Okay? And so this is what Judah says. It's kind of shocking. Bring her out and have her burned to death. 
Now understand, that is remarkably brutal. Even in that day, remarkably brutal. But we read this. It says that as she, Tamar, was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. It's an incredible story. Many layers of meaning going on here in this story. Remember, Judah was the man who sold his brother, Joseph, into slavery. And then he took Joseph's robe, that robe of many colors, right? And he dipped it in the blood of a, anybody know? Goat. We got goats going on in that story. We got a goat in this story, right? Dipped it in the blood of a goat, brought it to their father, Jacob. And you know what Judah said to his father, Jacob? He said, hey, we found this robe. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. Now, very similar language is being used to confront Judah. Similar kinds of language that Judah had used to deceive his father. Once more, there's this story with misleading clothes, you know, deep deception, and goats. (laughs) And these things are being used to cover up the truth. And essentially the same question is being asked in both these stories. See if you recognize this. Do Do you recognize these things, Jacob? Is this Joseph's coat? And now Tamar is asking Judah, do do you recognize this, Judah? You see, recognize ends up being a big word in this story. And not just in this story, but also in our story, in your story, in my story. You see, Judah, in a very real sense, is forced to recognize his own treachery, his own deception, his own deep-rooted sin and brokenness, not only in his dealings with Tamar, but even before that, in his dealings with his father, Jacob, and his brother, Joseph. Judah, do do you recognize this seal? Do you recognize this cord? Do you recognize these things, Judah, this staff? Uh, And then we read this, it says, Judah recognized them. And he said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. And so God begins to do a work in Judah. And one sign of that is they call off the execution. Thank God. Tamar lives and gives birth to two children, twins, in fact. Uh, And there's another really kind of interesting inner story, which we don't have time to go into much, but it's a struggle with these two twins about who the firstborn, uh, who's going to receive the birthright and who all of the the progeny of of Abraham are going to come through. Is it going to be the first son like it would normally be, or will it be the second? And of course, if you know that story, it becomes the second. And back to Tamar. Tamar, the rejected Canaanite woman, gets to be truly a mother of Israel. She gets to be a part of God's great reconciling adventure here in this story. And it's a marvel that that happens, uh, but it does. Now, just to kind of bring everybody right up so we're all on the same page, here's the moral of this story. If you're a woman and your first husband dies from wickedness and you marry his brother and he refuses to impregnate you and he dies and your father-in-law won't let you marry the third son, 
Just wait until your father-in-law's wife dies and then pretend to be a prostitute and have your father-in-law's baby and you will probably have twins. Merry Christmas. There you go. <laughs> now, how many of you are wondering just a little bit whether the narcotics are in full effect? <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I hope I can clear this up by the time we get done here. Question. How in the world did this get in the Bible? I mean, conventionally religious people don't even really feel comfortable reading this story, let alone in Advent season. (laughs) And they just naturally want to ask, couldn't Tamar have found a more wholesome way to deal with her problem? I mean, why couldn't she have sold Mary Kay or maybe some essential oils or learned how to do a computer coding? I mean, something, anything, right? Anything but prostitution. Well, here's the thing. The Bible doesn't tell us. It doesn't add any fuel to that kind of speculation whatsoever. Uh, Understand this, the ancient world was a pretty brutal place. Oh yeah, just like our world. It's not any different today. I mean, think about what women are suffering in South Sudan or in North Korea or in Syria at this particular moment, or I could go on and on. The world is a very brutal place. It was then, it is now. And the Bible has always been about telling the truth about true situations, real people in real uh, situations, Uh, situations where there's great evil, great injustice, situations where people are complex and confused, situations where their actions are often ambiguous and certainly hard to explain. And so when we read a story like we're reading right now, you better get your whole mind engaged or you're going to misunderstand it. You're not going to get the point. You better ask the Holy Spirit to be your teacher because you need his help. Otherwise, you'll go away from a story like this going, huh, what? Why is that in there, you see? Uh, Oftentimes, we find interlaced in the meaning of these stories, stories like this, meanings that we weren't prepared to perceive, let alone receive and, and, and embrace. For example, patriarchy. Patriarchy was the lay of the land in that day. It was a patriarchal society. Some people think that the Bible supports stuff like patriarchy. Well, it's because they're not reading it with their whole mind. They're certainly not reading it with the help of the Holy Spirit. Um, Here in this story, a story of a patriarch taking advantage of a daughter-in-law, it's very interesting. Uh, One of the points of this story is to undermine the evil that can be done by people with power, people like patriarchs. It's being undermined in this story. Here's a woman, Tamar, who's marginalized because of her gender, because of her ethnicity, being a Canaanite, because of her childlessness. And she is now a twice-widowed Gentile woman trying to live among Israelites. And she has now descended to about as low as a person can go on that social ladder of that day. She is the victim of sexual misconduct by her second husband, Onan. But instead of being cowed into passive surrender, which is what we might expect to see here, actually, she shows remarkable courage, initiative, determination, and you got to give her an A for creativity. And in the end, she triumphs over the system that's there, that patriarchal system, and over a culture that can take complete and full and oppressive advantage of her. Everything is stacked against Tamar in this story, everything. And yet she becomes a part of God's great 
reconciling story. <clears throat> and the reason for this, I would say, is not because Tamar's great or, you know, anybody said. No, the reason for this is that the major character in this story, the one to keep your eye on who's just beneath the text is God. It's God turning things upside down, which he's always doing. Here's a patriarchal system with all of the advantages to the patriarch, and God takes that whole thing and he turns it upside down. What we find in this story is a God who cares about little, defenseless, powerless, unimportant Tamar. And oh yeah, by the way, Judah too. In fact, God means to make her and Judah part of his redemptive reconciling community. But before that can happen, something's got to happen in here in Judah. And something's got to happen in the life of Tamar or she's just going to perish. You see, God is making a people from himself. You don't want to, did you want to know what the theme of the entire Bible is? Whoa, got dark over here. You want to know what the theme of the entire Bible? Well, it's all about God making a people for himself, a people to love, a people whose sins he's going to take care of. I mean, that, that, that's the message of the Bible. God making a people for himself. And he wants all kinds of people to be a part of his people. Even people everybody else thinks don't matter. They don't count. They're unimportant. They shouldn't be included. Well, God wants to reconcile those people to himself, to one another. And so he goes to work even on wicked old Judah and even for powerless little Tamar. And Judah recognizes this and says so when he says, she is more righteous than I. You get, of course, that that's a moment of repentance for Judah. What did he say just moments ago? Burn her. And now he's saying, no, wait a minute. She is more righteous than I. God's doing something in Judah's life as well as in Tamar's. We're seeing a little glimmer of godliness, godlikeness in Judah now. Now, Tamar, as I said, gives birth to twins. And of course, we wonder what happens to Tamar and what happens to the twins. And oddly enough, the writer of Genesis doesn't tell us. In fact, Tamar and the twins don't come up again. Not for like a thousand years, give or take. Like what happened to Tamar? That was a great story. God reconciling, God doing wonderful. And then boom. Well, here's how the New Testament begins. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Wow. Matthew, are you kidding me? What are you doing? Why are you going there? Why did you bring up that story? I mean, you didn't mention the other mothers, you know, Isaac's mom, Jacob's mom. It's very odd, this genealogy, Matthew. What exactly are you doing? You know, genealogies are a big, big deal in the ancient world. I know when we come to them, when we read today, we get to them and go, oh, boring. Why is this in here? Why do I have to read this? What does this mean? I don't really care. Ancient readers did care about genealogies. 
In that day, genealogies were how people learned about their identity and their culture. They were like uh, action-adventure movies. All the good stories were just locked up in a genealogy, you see. All their stories, all of those names, memorize those stories, memorize those names, and they would pass them down from one generation to another because those genealogies told them who they were, why they mattered, who their God was, how their God would work. This is our collective story. It's all bound up in the genealogies. They love them. Something interesting, at least to me, and since I preach this, I get to do what's interesting to me. Uh, Hebrew genealogies did not usually include women. Many of you knew that, but this one does. Uh, not just any women either, but a woman who tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her so she could bear children, and she's in the family tree of Messiah. And not just that, She's a Canaanite woman, for crying out loud. In other words, she is not one of us, Israelite, you know, not one of us, which means that Jesus isn't a pure blood. Don't tell anybody that. (laughs) You see, our guy turns out to partly be their guy. Oh, my. He's partly Canaanite. And Tamar is not the only woman in the genealogy. If you've read it, you know that. It's so strange. Matthew includes a woman named Ruth who was not an Israelite either. She was a Moabite. Oh, yuck. (laughs) He includes another woman, Bathsheba. And you probably know about her that King David inflicted himself on her in an act of adultery. And he includes another woman named Rahab, who's not just a Gentile, but a Gentile what? Prostitute. Matthew's got this thing with prostitutes. It's like Matthew just poured over the Old Testament saying, who are the most disreputable women I could stick into God's story here? Who will just tick everybody off when they read it? Because it did have that effect. I mean, right away when people read this genealogy, they're going, whoa, wow, really? It was surprising. You have to wonder why would Matthew do this? Why? Well, here's why, I think. You see, the coming of Jesus meant gospel. It meant some things were going to change, radically change. Surprise was on its way. Gospel means good news. And gospel, you understand, is for needy people. People that know they're needy. Gospel, you understand, is for messed up people. People who know they're messed up. They need a God to save them. They're not going to be able to save themselves. Uh, Gospel, you understand, is for people like Judah and for people like Tamar and for people like you and me. That's gospel. Nobody is perfect. Everybody is welcome. You see, God, Paul said, is reconciling the world to himself in Christ, in the Messiah, in the baby who came and was born in the manger, not counting people's sins against them. You see, that's what Jesus coming, that's what Advent, that's what this time of year is all about. God coming from up there down to here to do something about our great brokenness. In the advent and the coming of Jesus and all that spins out from that, outsiders aren't left outside anymore. Sinners become saints. 
Grace can flow so powerfully and freely that Judah and Tamar come together again in the Gospel of Matthew. And their little children are the conduits through whom the love of God flows because God, you see, was in their posterity right down to the birth of Jesus himself. They're in Jesus' family. Jesus is reconciling the world to himself. And there is a message in there, a huge message for you and for me. And that is that if God can reconcile an Israelite and a Canaanite, if God can reconcile Judah and Tamar, if God can reconcile saints and sinners and prostitutes and patriarchs and oppressors and the oppressed, well, who then lies beyond the reconciling power of Jesus Christ? And the answer is nobody. Nobody. That's Tamar's and Judah's message to us. They're in the genealogy to give us hope. This is who Jesus came from. And the work of Jesus, you know, is both retroactive and, and fast forward into the future. It goes both ways. The cross is a moment in time, but its impact went both backwards and forwards. It saved Judah. It saved Tamar. It can save us today. It can save who comes tomorrow. That's the work of Jesus. Um, and that's why Tamar's story is a Christmas story. So there. <laughs> Jesus loves you. And Jesus loves me. He loves the most unlikely people. Even you and even me and even Judah and even Tamar. And my challenge to you, you know, I said at the beginning, uh, kind of some of the things I want to do in this season of Advent is first to challenge us all to be reconciled to God. That's today. Next week, we'll talk about being reconciled to each other. And then the week after that, we'll talk about being agents of reconciliation. And so this morning, I would just challenge you, is there some area, something in your life that you're holding on to that puts distance between you and God? Let go of that. It's doing you harm. Is there some practice, some habit, something you hold on to that you think you've got to have even more than God, I would say to you, you're wrong about that. The point is, if there's anything in your life that's creating some kind of distance between you and God, today is a day. We're entering into Advent season. Take advantage of this moment. Seize this moment to be reconciled to God. For Judah, it just took, it took that, Judah, do you recognize these? <laughs> recognize, right? Is there something that you recognize in yourself that's getting in the way of you being who God wants you to be? Well, recognize that. And, and deal with that today. Ask, ask God to help you deal with that by repenting of it, getting rid of it, saying no to it. Uh, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, then your step's a little different. Yours would just be to put your faith in him and trust in him and believe in him and, and uh, make him your savior and your Lord. And then spend the rest of Advent just getting to know more and more about what that means by reading one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But I guess my point is just this. Uh, my, I'm guessing that all of us, 
All of us in this room have some kind of business that God would want us to do with him, between him and us. Some way that we could go deeper in our faith, deeper in our trust, deeper in our obedience, deeper in our appreciation and our gratitude of him and and what this season that we're entering into is all about. I would say the reason you ought to do that is because of the way he cares about you. It's because of the way he loves you. The way he demonstrated that in the death of his son, that was for you. That was for me. So be reconciled to God. We're gonna close our service by singing a hymn together. Hark the herald angels sing. Uh, you know, there's a line in there, God and sinners reconciled. That's what this season is about. Uh, pray with me. <clears throat> Father God, I would ask you to uh, be at work in us. Help us to recognize the things in us that are broken, that need to change. And this morning in particular, God, if there is something in our lives that's keeping us from you, from growing the way we should grow or from being the person you want us to be, would you move in us, God, and give us the strength and the courage to both recognize that and repent of it and give it to you? May we as a congregation enter into this season in a way that takes us to deeper levels of faith and trust and love in you. And God, if there's anybody here this morning that hasn't put their faith in you, God, would you be speaking to them and drawing them to yourself and convincing them of your love and and of the, the meaning of this season? Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you, God, for this time of worship this morning. Receive our praise in song. We give it to you now, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.